Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're sipping and savoring because this is where knowledge and inspiration is served up every Sunday. I'm teaching you all the right moves from my kitchen to yours. I have great advice on everything from fabulous food to travel to tech and more. And so I hope you'll tune in. If you're a food enthusiast, then it's my goal to make you a culinary genius. And you will find informative, entertaining, and delicious culinary information as it abounds on this show. I have additional wisdom posted at chefjamie.com. And you can always find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And stay tuned because this hour, I guarantee you a moment of culinary nirvana. Okay, so let's talk seasonally for a moment, shall we? Uh, To kick off the show, I thought I would share the best of the winter season. Certainly prime time for oysters from Maine and maple syrup from Maryland. Delaware delivers mushrooms this time of year. But in my sunny home state of California, we are graced with the arrival of the Meyer lemon. And as Russ Parsons waxed poetic as the food editor of the LA Times in his recent Meyer lemon mentions, he says here in California, we win. And I agree. The Meyer lemon is no doubt a prized find and it is much more readily available rather than ever before. So when you get your hands on some of the sweet tart variety, I thought I would share some inspiration for the lovely lemon. I am a Meyer lemon fan, and I am no doubt grateful to Alice Waters at Chez Panisse, who back in the 1970s made it her prized ingredient. And I think that was sort of the beginning of food lovers' passion for the Meyer lemon. But the fruit was actually discovered in China, the home of many fine citrus fruits, in fact. And it was brought back to the United States by a plant breeder named Frank Meyer. Now, it was a wildly popular backyard fruit in the 1920s. Today, the Meyer lemon is grown on more than just backyard fruit trees, but in orchards. And it extends the season until about April this year, which I think is fantastic. Now, by the way, the Meyer lemon does look very different than a traditional Eureka lemon. They're rounder with a more pronounced point at the blossom end. And the Meyer lemon has this sort of golden orange hued peel that is much thinner and much more delicate than a traditional lemon. It has the peel of a very soft, supple fruit, incredibly soft, in fact, and the Meyer lemon is noticeably juicier. But most importantly to me, it is all about the taste. Meyer lemons are much sweeter and less acidic than any other lemon, and they offer that bright flavor without the pucker, which is why I love them. Now, the juice and the peel of a Meyer lemon are beautifully floral and sweet, so you want to make sure to use up both. Now, you can peel the lemon with a very sharp uh, peeler, or you can take a paring knife, of course, or you could peel the lemon entirely and then dry out the peel itself, whether you use a dehydrator or your oven, even set to the low temperature or preferably a pilot light. And then once the peel is dry, you can grind it in your spice grinder and use your own 
lemon peel or dried lemon peel for months to come. Now, of course, the juice itself should be savored. So after you've peeled the lemon in any fashion, you want to squeeze the juice as much as you can release from the Meyer lemon. And you can always freeze it in ice cube molds for later use. Now, when it comes to storing fresh Meyer lemons... The peel, as I mentioned, is thinner, and so therefore it makes the lemon a bit more delicate. So while you would often leave lemons traditionally uh, in your produce bowl on the countertop, I recommend that you refrigerate Meyer lemons. And of course, um, if you have a, a bounty of them, let's say, then you always have them at hand. And by the way, if you have a Meyer lemon tree, you should be making lemonade, um, or you could call me if you want to share your bounty. Now, since lemon is a workhorse, you can use it in so many practical applications. Of course, you can squeeze it over sautéed fillets of your favorite fish, or it's delicious over fried fish too. Yum. I actually like to caramelize the lemons that I use for squeezing over a dish. And I'll do this with a traditional lemon or a Meyer lemon. Cut the lemon in half and place it cut side down in a hot saute pan. And over good high heat, it will turn golden on the cut side. It'll gain a little bit of beautiful brown char. It caramelizes and creates this flavor that is paramount. And then you can squeeze it over just about anything, shrimp or crab or fish or chicken. And of course, if you're going to use the juice of the lemon, be sure to zest first. For the fresh zest, you can always chop it up and let's say put it into a compound butter or yogurt or berries for breakfast or dessert. You can keep apples or avocados from browning with Meyer lemon juice so you get sweet rather than tart, um, or for a fruit salad, Meyer lemons are perfect, or why not slice a Meyer lemon, mix it with thick slices of fennel, and then roast a chicken on top for fabulous flavor. That sounds delicious right about now. And then what do you do with the rinds when you're done zesting and squeezing? Well, you can use the spent skins of any lemon, in fact, juiced and zest, to help degrease your pans. It works great, by the way. Or you can clean your cutting boards, uh, all the wooden boards that you have, a great tool for keeping them definitely clean and uh, bacteria-free. And then um, on countertops, a great thing to clean your kitchen down with. So now you know. Here is to Meyer lemon season while it lasts. Let me know what you're making or share your best Meyer lemon recipe. You can always email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Posted on the website, in fact, at chefjamie.com is my Think Like a Chef feature. It's my goal every week to inspire you and, of course, to make you a better cook in your own kitchen. It's my goal to make you the best cook you know, in fact. And so I feature a new method or a preparation to gain culinary intelligence. And so the education this week is all about the best way to cook beans, seeing that we are making hearty, beautiful winter fare and fabulous braises, why not consider dried beans, peas, and lentils? They're actually a vital food source. And in fact, coming up later in this hour, you're going to hear about some renegade farmers who have created the lentil underground, a really interesting story of the world's oldest cultivated crop. Evidence of cultivation of dried beans, in fact, goes back more than 7,000 years in some parts of the world. And while I love a can of 
already cooked beans as a simple shortcut like black beans and chili or the kidneys that you might love or even the cannellinis. I have to say, there's something really beautiful about cooking dried beans. Now, it takes a little more time than opening a can, yes, but you are richly rewarded with superior flavor and texture. Now, dried beans and the legumes are, of course, an excellent source of protein and fiber. They're nutritionally dense. They're inexpensive and they're really versatile. So I've given you the lowdown on everything you need to know about sorting and rinsing and soaking and cooking dried beans and legumes. So check it out at chefjamie.com. You'll also find my weekly dish posted on the website. It's a spaghetti squash boat with spicy marinara and lots of oozing, cheesy mozzarella for meatless Monday meals or a vegetarian side dish. Uh, It's one of my favorite winter comfort foods, um, and I do love the vegetarian approach. You'll also find a recipe perfectly indulgent for Valentine's Day. It's easy to make and out of this world. It's a croissant bread pudding. I also have a pomegranate martini, uh, perfectly red for the sweetheart holiday, with fabulous flavor and antioxidants. What could be better? Uh, Find them all posted at chefjamie.com. Just a few things you won't want to miss. And stay tuned because there's lots more delicious conversation in your radio. Coming up, we are highlighting Valentine's Day with Chef Francisco Magoya, the modernist cuisine chef who is waxing poetic on chocolate. He'll teach you how to temper, so stay tuned. Grab a snack and come on back. There's more fabulous food and gastronomic pleasure in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Love is in the air. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. And we're dishing with the biggest culinary thinkers on this show with ideas to make your sweetheart swoon. It's been an ongoing revolution in the art of cooking, dedicated to the beauty, passion, and science of what we all love to do, and that is love to cook, love to eat. The modernist cuisine encyclopedic cookbooks have inspired curious cooks, and the passion continues, of course. Founded and led by Nathan Mirvold, the first chief technology officer at Microsoft, Modernist Cuisine is a group of scientists and research and development chefs that are dedicated to advancing the state of culinary arts through experimental techniques and scientific knowledge. And at the helm is Francisco Migoya. You've heard him on the program before. He is about to change the way you think about food. He is the head chef of Modernist Cuisine. His resume is long and illustrious. In fact, having trained in Mexico City and France, he went on to become the executive pastry chef of the French Laundry and Bouchon, and he serves as a professor at my alma mater, the Culinary Institute of America. And so it is with great pride that I am delighted to share his knowledge and passion with you once again. His love is chocolate, so I asked him to join us to push the boundaries for Valentine's Day. Welcome back, Francisco. Glad to have you, chef. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Of course. Okay, let's talk about different types of chocolate, if you would. Um, we know the dark, the milk, the white, which really isn't chocolate, as some chefs will argue, right? But I think the percentages are what everyone focuses on most today. It is. Um, it's 
Basically, one of the things that you have to look at when you look at a uh, bar of chocolate mm -hmm. is that percentage. Now, uh, you may or may not recall, but 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't a thing. It was either dark chocolate or at least in a, in a regular chocolate shop environment, not professionally. Professionally, we always talk about percentages, but it seems that right now you go to any supermarket, really any supermarket, and it's it's classified by percentages. Yeah, you can buy good quality chocolate in a lot of places. Right, exactly. So uh, what does it mean when you look at that number? You know, we have, uh, you know, 60%, 62 63 up to, you know, 100%. So what that number should mean to you when you look at that bar is that that is the percentage of cocoa liqueur that is in the chocolate bar. And it's inversely proportionate to the amount of sugar that is going to be in the chocolate bar. So... If you have a 60% chocolate, what it means is that it's 60% chocolate liqueur and that it's 40% sugar. So as that number goes up, the sweetness goes down. Some people really, you know, it's, it's almost like an, uh, like, uh, I don't want to use the term snob, but it's a little <laughs> bit, uh, you know, the higher percentage you like, the more of a connoisseur you are. Right. So are you a chocolate snob? What is your percentage preference? I, I would say that I'm a chocolate snob, but more in the term of, of utilizing a quality ingredient, you know, the, a good quality uh, chocolate versus saying, no, I, I only eat 80% and above right. I'm, you know, that kind of person. But it's it really what you have to do as a chocolatier is look at chocolate from perspective of what am I going to use this chocolate for and am I combining it with other flavors? So... Um, if we look at dark chocolate, dark chocolate just takes over the whole thing. So it's it's very hard to combine other flavors with dark chocolate, uh, where the main star isn't just the dark chocolate. It, there's there's whatever other flavors you combine with it, they have to be very strong to be able to hold up to dark chocolate. So that's why you'll always see, for example, uh, Earl Grey goes very well with dark chocolate. Yes. Uh, you know, coffee. These are very intense flavors. But if you tried something more subtle, uh, they tend to disappear. So when I, I tell you, you know, that I do like the dark chocolate, but I also like, if I'm doing a, a filled chocolate, like a confection, or some people call them bonbons, mm -hmm. I will do a dark shell, mm -hmm. but then the filling or the ganache will be milk chocolate with whatever flavoring I'm adding to it. Because milk chocolate is a little bit more neutral in that regard, and it's not... It allows other flavors to shine through. To permeate, right. So you have to think of it intelligently as to what it is that you want this chocolate to do. Is it playing a, a, a stellar role or is it playing a background role? Okay, so let's say it's playing um, a rather equal, even-keeled role with uh, a strawberry or dried fruit. Because when I conjure up ideas of Valentine's Day, uh, whether it's for those that are experienced pastry chefs or home bakers, I think the quintessential chocolate dip strawberry is never turned down. Um, and when it comes to the, the standards for Sweetheart's Day, you need to know how to temper chocolate. And if you would share with us the dynamics, because no matter the kind of chocolate you're using, milk or dark or any percentage in between, the tempering process is essential. Uh, here's, here's a little bit of uh, uh, geekery when it comes to chocolate. And it's basically it, chocolate, part of it is fat. It's cocoa butter. And cocoa butter is what is known as a crystalline fat, meaning that when it hardens, it forms 
when it's cold, it forms a hard crystalline structure. It's not like canola oil that will never crystallize. It will never become a firm, hard fat. So cocoa butter is, uh, is a hard fat, but it's also what is known as poly- polymorphous. So meaning that at different temperatures, it will have different structures of, of the fat crystal. So um, what we want to do is we want to get those fat crystals mm-hmm. to cool down to the temperature where they're going to align really nicely and they're going to give us a chocolate that has shine and that has a snap, okay? And in order for that to happen, you need to temper it. You can't just melt it and then cool it down in your fridge and hope that it'll be fine. The first thing you have to do is melt your chocolate. Depending on the type of chocolate, meaning either white, darker milk, uh, you there's an ideal temperature to get them to. But for all intents and purposes, let's say that 110 degrees Fahrenheit is a number that works across the board for all all types of chocolate. So when we get our chocolate to that temperature, to 110 degrees Fahrenheit, all of the fat crystals inside the chocolate have completely separated from each other, and they're not aligned. They're just kind of floating around, okay? So that's we want to do that. We want to make sure that they're they're free from whatever form they were in before they were melted so that we can take charge and tell them what sort of crystal formation we want them to have. So in order for this to happen, what we need to do is, is basically cool the chocolate down, and there's different ways to do that. One of my favorite is to use a method that's called tabling, which is basically we take the chocolate, we take three-quarters of the chocolate, and then we pour it onto a marble surface, and we basically use like an offset spatula, mm-hmm. and we spread it across the entire surface of the marble. Now, this is accomplishing two things. The first is that it is cooling it down, of course. Right. But the second part that is very important is that it's agitating the chocolate, okay? And it's agitating the fat crystals. And what it's doing is its agitation promotes crystallization. So hmm. it's an easy way to, to remember that because it rhymes, but that's what you're doing. <laughs> it's why if you melt the chocolate and just let it cool down in the fridge, it would never be nice and shiny. It wouldn't crystallize properly, and it would what would happen is the fat would bloom, meaning you get those white streaks on top of the chocolate. Right, the gray. Allow me to interrupt you for a moment. I love the geekery, by the way, Chef. And for those that just tuned in, you're late because Chef Francisco Magoya at the head of Modernist Cuisine is teaching you to temper chocolate just in time for Valentine's Day. Can you do it on a a countertop? Let's say you have a granite countertop, for instance. There's no need to buy a marble slab, right? You can use a smooth, cool surface to do the same function. Yes, and, and you know, this allows me for, like, a quick story. When I, I used to have a chocolate shop in New York, and when we first opened, I couldn't afford a marble table because they're expensive. Mm-hmm. So I would, I would scrub my, table, my stainless steel table down really well, dry it, and I would use my stainless steel table for the same purpose. Now, okay. it takes a little bit longer because stainless steel absorbs either heat or cold, right. very much more so than marble does, which is why we like marble, because it, it doesn't absorb that temperature very well. Um, so it just takes longer. But yes, you can pretty much do the same thing on any surface. Well, thank you for sharing the geekery and the hacks. I'm grateful. My yes, <laughs> You always bring um, the best ideas to the table, and I hope that you'll come back and join us again, um, because I always Absolutely. feel I learn so much when you're here. It is the culinary revolution that has transformed kitchens around the world, modernist cuisine, setting a new standard for cookbooks, 
And they're continuing their work with a home version and an app. And so please do check it out, modernistcuisine.com. Um, chef, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Francisco Magoya, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and more insightful information and conversation coming up next. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Sweeter side today. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Paleo eaters, unite and listen here. Whether you avoid grains and dairy because you have an allergy, uh, whether it's for health or wellness, if you're looking to lose weight, sometimes you need a simple indulgence, right? And cakes and cookies and pies and donuts and breads, all those treats, they are no longer off limits if you are a paleo eater, thanks to Elizabeth Barbone. She is the trusted author of two gluten-free cookbooks and her third entitled World's Easiest Paleo Baking, Just Released. She is a CIA grad, as we share, an alma mater. And I have to tell you, those of you that have listened for a long time and know me, I am not a paleo eater. But Elizabeth's desserts would make me a paleo baker, and I am delighted to welcome Elizabeth Barbone to the show. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on today. Yes, of course. I'm very glad to have you. Okay. So if we want to stock a grain-free pantry, just give us the basics, the lowdown. It's actually not that difficult. You're going to want to stock three ingredients that will serve as your flour, and that's almond flour, coconut flour, and tapioca starch. Okay. So those are the flours that we use. You're actually going to want to add some baking soda, which you'll probably have at home, you know, in the pantry. Sure. But you need cream of tartar because if you're grain-free, and especially if you have a corn allergy, most baking powder contains a grain-based starch. Interesting. So if you're baking, yeah, if you're baking grain-free, you need to make homemade baking powder. Um, I have a recipe for it in the book. You just whisk together some baking soda, cream of tartar, and a little tapioca starch to keep everything, you know, running freely. Sure. Very, very smart. And then as far as sugar, you prefer a sugar substitute, right? Well, no. I actually avoid sugar substitutes, but I bake with unrefined sugars. Okay. So I mean that. I'm sorry. And I should clarify, not traditional granulated sugar, but the unrefined kinds. And there are a lot of, I should call them sugar choices. Yep. And sugar is a huge issue. And so, you know, I came at this from the point of view of a baker Mm. and I thought sugar plays a really important role in baking. And I didn't want to use artificial sugar substitutes, but I love the flavor that maple syrup brings to a recipe. Me too. Isn't it great? Yes, there's something rustic and wonderful about it. Yes, and I love local honey. Mm. You know, you want to get some really flavorful local honey. Yes. Um, sometimes I mix those two in a recipe, and you get an almost um, 
caramel flavor when you mix maple and honey together. It's mm. really a delight. And then for the, on the granulated side of things, so those are two liquid sweeteners. On the granulated side of things, I like to use um, either evaporated cane juice, which is okay. just, you know, basically granulated sugar that hasn't been bleached. And I like coconut sugar, which has a very strong caramel flavor. It Again, these sugars are really flavorful. Yes. And I like coconut anything. And we'll get to that because I would really like to talk your paleo chocolate truffles. But first, we have to start at breakfast. Okay. So uh, cinnamon streusel coffee cake. You make it in the book. It looks like a good New York coffee cake to me and I'm all in. Yes. I When I want a slice of coffee cake, so what I'm really thinking about is that sugary cinnamon topping. Yes. That is the most important thing for me. And with this book, all of the recipes are really scaled down, so you're not making a giant recipe. This is just an 8-inch round um, recipe. You whisk all of the ingredients together in a mixing bowl because I didn't want to have to pull out multiple bowls and do all sorts of crazy things. Oh, it's a one-bowl recipe. I love it's it. It's a one-bowl recipe, and so you can dump everything into a mixing bowl, and you're ready to go. Hmm, and so it has smart. that nice, because we're using almond flour in that, mm-hmm. it has a nice, crispy, beautiful topping. Yeah, and the, I like that nutty underlying flavor as well. That's one of the reasons I use nut flours, not because of uh, allergy or health restriction, but because I like the flavor profile. And there are so many options available to us today to bake or cook to our own palate that I think it's wonderful to use the ingredients outside of your standard wheelhouse. You know, that's exactly right. And I, what I found when I was developing the recipes for this book is that they're so wonderfully flavorful. Hmm. So when I was giving, you know, this coffee cake to a friend because when you're testing recipes for a book you have a lot of baked goods <laughs> around people like you you should say when you're testing recipes for a book people like you yes exactly and so i would give this to folks and they were they would say oh my gosh this is one of the best coffee cakes i've had it has you know almond flour has a little coconut flour in it mm-hmm. and coconut flour is so interesting it actually acts almost like a sponge it's very thick and absorbent Mm. And then that maple syrup flavor comes Mm. in, and then you have the maple sugar and the cinnamon on top. So good. Okay, I'm going to make it. Now, I also um, find it very tempting because how could you not want to make the world's easiest cookies from your book? I love those cookies so much. Okay, there's... There's only four ingredients, Elizabeth. I know. We can make them over the air. Okay, so let's do it. In our imagination, we are going to dump into our bowl almond flour that homemade baking powder that we talked about, maple syrup, and a little, a generous amount of vanilla, actually. Okay. Stir that together. No eggs, no dairy, no nothing. No nothing. No nothing. You stir this together, and it really feels like magic to me Hmm. because you just use a wooden spoon. You don't even need a handheld mixer. Not that I mind a handheld mixer, but you don't need one. You stir this together, and the maple syrup pulls the almond flour together, and as you're stirring, the almond flour releases a little bit of oil because it's a nut flour, so it has oils in it. And you get this beautiful dough that looks very much like traditional cookie dough. Wow. You drop that onto a baking sheet, and then you have options. If you just want to drop it onto a baking sheet, you get soft cookies, so they have a little bit of a, a crust on the outside, and they're very soft on the inside. 
or you can press them down with uh, the bottom of a drinking glass mm -hmm. into a little bit of a flat cookie, and then you get a crisper cookie that's just, oh, it's perfect with a cup of tea or a cup of hot coffee. We're sharing the world's easiest paleo baking, Elizabeth Barbone, you and me, Chef Jamie, right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Elizabeth Barbone as we are paleo baking. Leave us with this, never enough time to talk sweets, um, but you and I were classically trained and for all those that love to cook and bake, we know in our minds that standard ganache is made from chocolate and cream. So I was very excited to read and learn from your chocolate truffle recipe. This was one of the most delightful recipes that I developed because like you, I learned that unless you mix chocolate with heavy cream, truffles were impossible. That Correct. They just wouldn't work. Exactly. So what I did was I grabbed a can of full fat, and that's really important. You need a full fat coconut milk. Hmm. And if you chill it, when you open the can, you will find a very thick layer of white coconut cream. It sits on top. You pull that off, and you need about a half cup of that to eight ounces of chocolate. Mix that together just like you would do with a regular ganache. So you bring the coconut cream, coconut milk, to a boil. You add your dairy-free dark chocolate, and you stir. You get the most velvety, rich, deeply flavorful chocolate truffles. And I'm telling you, you would never guess that they were dairy-free. That's really brilliant. Absolutely. Congratulations to you. You know, I see a lot of cookbooks come um, past my desk. And I will tell you, from a paleo perspective, from anyone looking to really uh, enlighten themselves and expand their repertoire, these are some of the best recipes I have seen in a long time. So kudos to you. Um, oh, thank you. For your new baby here. Yes, I know. And congrats. Well-deserved. It's called The World's Easiest Paleo Baking. And it is written by Elizabeth Barbone. And the book is available now, Amazon.com, your favorite bookstore. I've actually posted a link to Elizabeth's website where you will find um, a recipe in addition to the book that I can't wait to make, which is a gluten-free cheesecake pancake. Yum. Uh, and that, of course, will link from chefjamie.com to glutenfreebaking.com. Elizabeth, will you come back and share more recipes as the seasons change and, um, and you're baking, you know, differently uh, according to the fresh produce and to the weather? I'd love to have you back. I would be happy to come on and chat with you anytime. I'm Thank always you. happy to talk about sweets. Yes, and, and I, I will second that. Um, give in to your cravings in a better, healthier way. Indulge with treats from the world's easiest paleo baking. The new book from Elizabeth Barbone available now. There's more delicious conversation in your radio. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
This is your culinary culture and lifestyle show that celebrates food and wine and travel and the ability to feed your soul. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. CNN dubbed Maggie Mistel one of the nation's best known career coaches. And so if you want to soul search, research, and job search, you want to do it with Maggie. I am proud to call her my friend. I love her podcasts posted at MaggieMistel.com. She is a certified life purpose and career coach who has transformed the lives of her followers and her personal coaching clients with motivational advice. Maggie's been featured on everything from NBC's Today Show to Fox Business and in the New York Times, and she is joining us once again, as I'm proud to as well call her our resident career coach here in your radio, to give us the help that we need to fulfill the goals that we have, especially at the start of a new year. And I'm very glad to welcome you back. Hi, Maggie. Hi, Jamie. Great to be here. <laughs> Thank and you. always proud and honored to be your resident career coach Thank and you. be of service to your fabulous listeners. So well, I'm excited to be Thank you. Yes, of course. And I'm glad to have you back, especially because it is at the start of a year and we want to do everything we can to kick off 2016 so that we ensure success. Okay. So how do you channel a positive attitude? You have these 2016 resolutions and you decide, right, I'm going to make it happen this year. And then that little bug starts to creep in like, oh, I've tried it before. It didn't work. Or... I'm still stuck in that same place. So what is that productive mindset you speak about, the positive attitude, and how do you make it come to fruition? And you're, the biggest thing you can do, Jamie, you're hitting on it actually, is to prepare for a positive outcome to whatever that challenge or those challenges happen to be. So what I often do is I have my clients write down all their concerns. So if their goal is to change careers or get promoted or ask for a raise, or find better work-life balance. I say, okay, great, that's the goal. Now write down all the fears or concerns that come to mind when you think about having that conversation with your boss, or making a career change, or soul-searching to figure out what you'd really like to do. So we make this list, and then I go through them, and I say, okay, for each one, is it a fact or is it a fear? So, for example, a lot of times I'll hear people say things like, well, I'll have to start over at the bottom if I make a change, or Mm -hmm. if I make a move because I've built so much up where I am. Is that a fact or a fear? Well, honestly, most times it's a fear or a feeling. It's not the fact because you have a lot of transferable skills. No matter what field you've been in, no matter what you want to change into, you can bring those skills with you. And I've changed careers many times. I've not had to start over at the bottom because I'm not incompetent. <laughs> a lot of things that I can translate, whether that's knowing how to deal with people, knowing how to communicate, knowing how to structure and run a project. Every single one of us has a lot of skills that we've developed that are life skills that apply no matter where you're working. So if you're thinking, I have to stop myself because all these fears are overwhelming or these concerns, write them down and then go through each one and really assess if it's, if it's the truth. Um, because another big one that comes to mind when I talk to people is they say, well, if I go to school, for example, if they do need to go to school, if that is something they actually have to do to get a new certification uh, or a new degree, they'll say, well, I'm going to be you know, 45 when I graduate. I'm like, well, how old are you going to be if you don't go? You'll still be 45 in those five years. So why, but at at that age, you'll be actually doing what you want to be doing. Mm. So we have to look at these false, the fears, the false evidence appearing real. And really assess what is the obstacle. And actually, we have a lot of opportunity to overcome those obstacles. 
false evidence appearing real. Okay, I'm, I'm putting it on a post-it on my computer. I'm going to read it every day. Um, I love that you talk about in the podcast, and I'm going to encourage my listeners to go to maggiemistal.com. It's M-A-G-G-I-E-M-I-S-T-A-L.com and listen to the podcast on creating a friendly universe because it's uh, Maggie that taught me to make the shift to what is working in your life and career and use that as the momentum And it has been tremendously empowering. Um, Maggie, before um, I let you go, just talk about this new mastermind group. You're uh, offering a new mindset course, is it? Right. Well, I found over the years I've been coaching. It's almost 15. I hate to say it because I think it makes me sound old. No, congratulations. See, what age would you be, Maggie, if you hadn't done it? (laughs) (laughs) See, and that's where you're hitting on the point. Really, it is mindset that, that either helps us or hurts us, right? Or helps, either gets us in or doesn't. Right. So, Jamie, this idea of enlisting support from others, right? There it is, right? You give it right back to me. I need it too. I'm here to offer it for you. That idea to enlist support from others is so critical. And some people don't have folks in their life that are in a position to be that kind of support. And that's really where this mastermind program came from. It's a support group. It really is. <laughs> for your attitude. With the help of... Certainly the nation's uh, best known and loved career coach. She's Maggie Mistel, and you will find her here as often as I can grab her feeding your soul in your radio. And you can always um, follow her advice and learn her tools and tricks for the best life at Maggie Mistel, M-I-S-T-A-L dot com. Maggie, I'll see you in the mastermind group. Come back soon, please. My pleasure, Jamie. I would love it. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of another hour of delicious conversation. I thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the culinary dialogue. I'd love to know what you think about the content of this show, what you'd like to hear, what you're cooking. And you can always email me directly at jamie at chefjamie.com. You can find daily inspiration, of course, on the website at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. And I'll leave you with this. I like to call it my last bite or my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. And it is once again a slow cooker inspired meal. I spoke a few weeks ago about roasting garlic in your slow cooker, especially during the winter months. There's something wonderful about slow cooked meals. And I am a steel cut oatmeal fan, but it's the long cooking that makes the oats very hard to execute on a weekday morning, right? Well, I have been making slow cooker coconut oatmeal overnight. And I have to say, it is brilliant. The slow cooker does all the work while you sleep. You just coat the inside of your slow cooker with a little bit of unsalted butter to keep the oatmeal from sticking. And then you add in the oats and water. And then I like to use coconut milk for indulgent flavor or whole milk, a little bit of brown sugar and maybe some spices like ground ginger or cinnamon. You stir it all together. You set your slow cooker on low and you wake up to a hot breakfast. It's really fabulous. Until next Sunday, I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.